0: have high integrity and trust. If you don't have those two ingredients, then you can't coach because the players will see right through you. They'll see that you don't tell them the truth. And if they can't trust you, the same relationship you have with friends, your spouse, if you, if there's no trust there, you have no relationship.
1: Welcome to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association join hosts Adam Hall and Walt Serrato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in Ohio high school basketball and beyond. This show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get to it.
2: Hello and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. It's Adam Hall here with my co-host Walt Serrato. And tonight we are excited to be joined by Coach Brendan Sir. Coach Brendan Sir is viewed as one of the most respected figures in the game of basketball today with nearly 30 years as a coach and executive in the NBA and 13 seasons as a coach at the collegiate level. Coach Sir currently serves as the president of Coaching You and host of the Coaching You Podcast. Coach... Thank you for coming on tonight, and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. I love what you guys are doing. Coach, I'd like to go back to your playing days at Fairlawn High School in New Jersey. Talk to us a little bit about the experience you had playing for Hubie Brown and the influence that he had on you at that stage in your life. And Coach, if you could, uh, maybe share your thoughts on the role of a high school coach in today's world.
0: Yeah. You know, my mom was a history teacher in high school. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, when I got in ninth grade, I was at another school and I decided to transfer after we I mean, had 10th, 11th and 12th grade high school in my town. And Ubi had come in as the coach and he uh, had me play in the summer league and then said, uh, and I told him I was going to transfer and he immediately uh, took me to five-star camp the very first year of five-star basketball camp. We had 48 campers. Okay. Imagine that 48 campers. And uh, after being with UV for one year, I just, I said to myself uh, I had, you know, when you're going, when you're in 10th grade, you don't know what the hell you're going to do in life. You don't, who cares, you know, just trying to get up the next day and function. And uh, you know, and all of a sudden I had this incredible teacher who was the football defensive coordinator, was the head basketball coach, and was the head baseball coach. And he's the best coach I've ever seen in any sport. He was also the best teacher in our school. He taught business law. Very unusual to have a subject like that in a high school. And you couldn't get into his class. That's how great he was. And so you were mesmerized every time that he spoke. And I had never seen anyone like this. I was in awe. And obviously I was young. I didn't have much experience to, you know, what a good coach was or anything like that. But I knew I would love to be a coach after having him. So my belief has always been that the the high school coach, the great high school teacher is the most influential person in a young person's life. So I wanted to be like Yubi. I wanted to just be a high school coach. That's all I wanted in my life. That was my goal. And I, I purposely uh, had signed at a a school, but it didn't offer PE. And I couldn't see myself teaching English or history. So I went to a very, very good division two school and, you know, a a national contender that was near my home because it was the best PE program in the country. And I said, you know what, I I wanted to teach that because I knew I could teach that. I couldn't teach English or history. And and, uh, my mom, you know, even after coaching for 30 years in the NBA, she said to me before she passed years ago, she said, you know, you you disappointed your father and I. You never did what you went to school for. You never taught in high school. I said, Mom, I coached over 30 years in the NBA. Yeah, but that's not what you went to college for, you know. I said, But, uh, but that's what I wanted to do, and I think it's an incredible thing. And uh, literally it's the only thing I haven't done in basketball, you know. And uh, – I regret it because I I went right from when I was 21 right into college coaching. I didn't even graduate from college. I had two months to go to graduation. Dick Vitale hired me to go to the University of Detroit when we only had two assistant coaches. 21 years old, don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know anything about rules or anything like that. But I worked for him in the summer as a counselor at his camp, so he knew me. And that's the other thing I always say is you never get a job with a resume. You get it through relationships through contacts and stuff like that so but yubi was the greatest coach when i worked with him with the hawks and i know i'm going ahead ted turner who was our owner uh offered him the job to be the manager to at atlanta braves <laughs> and he, and he took it and we were he was going to coach i didn't know if Fertello was going to be the third base coach or anything but Then uh, the commissioner of baseball, Bowie Kuhn, said, no, you can't coach an NBA team and a Major League Baseball team. And they wouldn't let him do it like the day day of the game uh, because we're right in the middle of the season. So I just love Yubi. He's 88 years old now. And when he's on ABC or or ESPN, it's a clinic every night. You know, he's the most
3: magnificent teacher I've ever seen in any sport. Coach, you kind of touched on... My um, next question I had for you—you you alluded to it with um, Dick Vitale—and I think a lot of people might not might be surprised to hear that that's where you got um, as a young coach with at the University of Detroit. Dick Vitale started. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that came together? Um, lessons you learned early in your coaching career that maybe you've taken with you over
0: well, over your career? Well, D- yeah, Dick. Dick was a high school coach. I played against his teams and. In- the summer, and then, you know, we weren't in the same league. He coached at a very small team in Jersey. We were at a bigger school. But, but he had one of the best teams in the country. He had the best player in the country, a 6'10 kid by the name of Les Kason, first-team high school American. And so he had a superstar. And uh, Dick went up the ladder. He became the top assistant at Rutgers. He should have been named the head coach. Instead, he didn't get the job. And next thing you know, the University of Detroit, who was a program in tremendous turmoil, hires him because he's a great recruiter. Only problem was Dick and I had never been to Detroit. We didn't know our way out of New Jersey. And I remember we went to, you know, I I went there, you know, I'm 21 years old. It's April 1st. You know, kids didn't sign letters of intent till April 15th. It couldn't, there was no early signing period. And, uh, the good news was that I had a couple of kids from Five Star Camp that were some of the best players in Michigan, and uh, literally, this is how different it is. We, we literally got to Detroit News and Free Press and looked at the All State team, and that's how we recruited. <laughs> literally, we we had no idea what the hell we were doing. We didn't know anyone. You know, we, I don't. You know, I knew a couple of players there. And uh, my first player, one of the first players I went to recruit was this kid by the name of Tony Dungy at Jackson Parkside House, High School. who's an all-American, all-state football player, all-state basketball player. He wanted to play both in college, except the University of Detroit didn't have football. <laughs> so I went to uh, see him, and this is like the April 7th. He's going to make his decision a week. And uh, Michigan and Michigan State is where he wanted to go, and they wouldn't give him a scholarship for football or basketball, and uh, so I, I went to the principal's office, and I said, can I talk to Tony Dungy? And She said, why? I said, I'm 21. I look like I'm a senior in high school, and she, I said, uh, well, I'm recruiting him at the University of Detroit, and he comes down, and he says, I'm not interested in the University of Detroit, and I said, I got this guy in the car. He's the new head coach, Dick Vitale, and if I can't have you talk to him, he's probably going to fire me. He said, really? I said, please, just talk to him. That was my recruiting pitch back then. And Tony was great enough to sit there and Dick came in like a tornado and just, just goes on about how great he is, how great the school is. I don't even know if we'd even seen the school. And, uh, and he says, well, I want to play quarterback coach at university of Detroit. You don't have football. And Dick says, I'll get them to put football back in, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and that, but to this day, Tony and I are tremendous friends, and he now tells the story when he's on the banquet circuit. He's so he thinks it's hysterical. But you know, but that's who Dick was. He's the most enthusiastic, hardest working guy. And it was the worst one of the worst programs in the country. And within three years, you know, he had him up in the NCAA tournament, Sweet 16, Elite Eight in four years. He's just a dynamo, you know, he's eighty-two years old on the on the paper. But mentally, he's like a damn 25-year-old. He's fabulous, you know. Last game he ever coached in the NBA was against my Detroit Pistons. I mean, my Atlanta Hawks with UB Brown, who was a dear friend of his, uh, and Mike Fratello, another guy that was a summer counselor for him. uh, And he got fired right after the game, 12th game in the year. It was so sad. I mean, you know, yeah, so – that was I, and I always tease him about it I said he couldn't beat my ass you know but <laughs>
2: well coach let's transition here a little bit and and talk to us a little bit about how you broke through uh into the NBA with the Atlanta Hawks
0: well Atlanta was amazing because uh, you know when I get out of college I uh you know I, I mean when I get out of playing in college I immediately go into college coaching uh you know and I go a year at Detroit then I came back east to Fairfield University in Connecticut, which was a was a pretty high major program. I mean, we only had major college and small college. We didn't have D1, D2, 3, but they were one of the 25, 30 best teams in the country. Amazing small 2800s je- student Jesuit school. And uh, we had great teams. And after five years, um, you know, I'm, I'm just get, finishing up getting my master's degree. And uh, Mike Fratello calls me up. Uh, uh in june and he says hey uh Yubi and i need to see you in washington dc uh tomorrow i said uh mike i can't come i'm finishing up my my last course of my master's degree and i've got it 10 days uh four hours a night i can't miss one class he said no you can take a plane down we'll get you back for your six o'clock class i said okay and so I did it. And when I am down there, they, they lured me there by telling me they had this product. They wanted me to sell for them. It's a bunch of BS. And, uh, I think it's some ball with a fingertips on it. And so, uh, where you hold the ball when you shoot. So I go down there and, uh, they had their, they're in the NBA league meetings and they, and after they come out of a meeting, uh, Yubi says, come on up, let's go to my room for tell myself and Yubi go up there. And, uh, Ub says, uh, uh, Listen, uh, Frank Layden, uh, who is his roommate in the college at Niagara, just left to become the general manager of the New Orleans Jazz before they moved to Utah. And uh, he said, uh, I'm going to offer you the assistant coaching job with the Atlanta Hawks, with me and Mike. And I, I'm telling you, I almost fell off the bed because uh, I didn't know a damn thing about the NBA, I didn't know anything and uh and he's and like with that if you ever know anything about ub he the big thing about ub is everything's on a yellow legal pad and he, he pulls out a yellow legal pad and he says you're going to get a three-year contract thirty-five thousand, 5 and 40 he could have told me i would have had to pay him and i was coming you know and he said you know and and you're gonna get a car you're gonna get this and that." And I'm like going, I think I was making $11,000 at Fairfield. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And so he says, Is that all right? And I go, Yeah, it's fine. And, uh, and then I walk downstairs, take a cab to the airport, and I said, I'm in the freaking NBA. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what the hell. I know that's how it happened. And I was in the NBA and I know, still don't know how the hell I got there. But he, he, he liked me as a player. When I was playing in college, he was the best clinician, summer camp and clinic clinician there ever was, I think, Ubi, And I would go around for three or four years with him and demonstrate when he would put on a clinic. And so, you know, I got to be close to him. But that's, I mean, it's the damnedest thing of all time. Certainly had no resume to be there, but it was an amazing uh, opportunity and uh, Fratello and I and you know, we just
3: got to work with the finest coach in the world, in my opinion. Well, like you mentioned, sometimes it's not about your resume. Sometimes it's right time, right place. And do you have those relationships? Right. It's the whole. Yep. Well, that's the key. Yeah. So, so let's fast forward. You're with the Hawks yep. for about ten years. You work your way up the ranks, become assistant GM, which is no small feat. Um, seems like you're on the fast track to become the general manager, right? And then you get a phone call from a guy named Chuck Daly with an offer to help coach the Pistons. Can you talk to us about how you made that decision and how that went down? I just had an offer last week to
0: write a book based on this story. And uh, what happened uh, was, you know, we had no, nowadays if you look at these uh, pro teams, they have huge staffs, coaching staffs of, scouts and everything we had no scout we had no one to do advanced scouting or college scouting we had two assistant coaches and I was the only person in the front office because my president Stan Caston, was the president of the Hawks the Braves and the Atlanta Thrashers our NHL team we owned all three <laughs> and so I was running basketball and what happened is that now, you know, I'm out scouting for Mike. Uh, you know, some NBA games that they have coming up, and a couple of them were at Detroit, against Detroit. And Chuck, I'd known since I was 15 years old, since I was a high school sophomore. He was a college coach, and you know, I would, I would, you know, the first time I was at Five Star, Chuck was an assistant at Duke, and so that's when I got to first meet him. And, uh, so, you know, we were, we had really became, you know, we're close friends and, uh, we, we went to dinner when I was scouting one night and then, uh, he called me up on New Year's day and said, uh, my assistant coach Dick Versace is going to be named the head coach in three days with the Indiana Pacers. Um, they had fired their coach like two weeks prior and, uh, you're too young to be in the front office. You should be coaching still they had lost in the finals by two points the year before to the Lakers in game seven. He said, why don't you come here? I think we're really close. And I, I was so stunned by it. I said, you know, geez, Chuck, I said, I didn't know what the hell to say. I said, you know, and he's very close friends with Fratello. And, uh, and I, I said, well, I got to, I got to talk to Mike, but I said, Also, you got to have the general manager, Jack McCoskey, call Stan Kasten and ask permission to talk to me because I'm under contract. And so they did. And Stan Kasten's also from New Jersey. So he's a little bit of a wise ass. So when they call and ask for permission, he says, sure. You want me to take him to the airport to send him there? You know, being being a wise guy. And they said, no, that's fine. We're coming down tomorrow to talk to him. (laughs) And that's what happened. And I went out to, to dinner with Chuck the following night in Atlanta for four hours and uh, it was the most honest, brutal conversation I've ever all time. And he was magnificent. I'm basically at the end, I said to Chuck, I said, Hey, I don't want to screw up your team because the Hawks and the Pistons hated each other. We had really had rough playoff series. And I said, I don't know if Isaiah and those guys even want me to be around. I said, he said, no, I've checked it out. They want you. So I said, okay. Um, So now I, I went to Fratello and said, Hey, he's the best man at my wedding. And I said, Mike, uh, I said, they've offered me this job. And he says, why would you ever take that? I said, they just offered it to me. I've never gone in for an interview in 10 years. I said, your buddy, your boss gave permission to talk to him. I said, I'm going to have dinner with him. And then, uh, the next day, which was Tuesday, uh, they made, they called, made an offer and they, Back then, the salaries of assistant coaches in the NBA were pretty low. And uh, the top assistant in Detroit was making 80000 And I was making a hundred with the, the Hawks. And uh, the first offer from the, the uh, Pistons was 125000 which I said, damn, they're serious. And I said, uh, I can't take it. My wife works and she'll have to quit her job. So I said, I wasn't negotiating. I just was honest. I said, I can't take the job. And uh, and I thought they'd say, okay, that's fine. And uh, it was the best thing I've ever learned, and I use it in negotiating all the time, when you want something. Jack McCluskey said, okay, give me the number you want. And I said, I am screwed right now. I am screwed because whatever number I tell them, they're saying yes. So I said, I want 200000 plus a playoff share. There was no assistant coach. There were head coaches that weren't making that. And I said two hundred thousand plus a full playoff share, and they goes, "Okay, done." I didn't know Chuck Bailey was making two twenty five, <laughs> you know, and, uh, I, and and so it happened like that, and I didn't know what the hell to do now, and so it was done, and uh, it's the best thing I ever did in my life, absolutely the best thing in my life I've ever done. And I love the Midwest because of it. I I've been in Detroit, but there's nothing like Midwest. People are great, whether it's Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin. They're they're phenomenal places, and and Detroit is fabulous. And so it was just incredible. And so it changed my life as a coach being there with those incredible players, with maybe the greatest coach in NBA history, in my opinion.
2: And coach, we'll get into some of those teams here. In a little bit, but I'd like to take the opportunity to spend just a little bit more time talking about Coach Daly. You know, I recently reread the book Daily Wisdom, which was written by Pat Williams. And for the listeners who may not be familiar with the book, the book contains 52 Chuckisms, which were expressions that Coach Daly would use quite often. Uh, Expressions such as, you know, the best asset a coach can have is selective hearing. Uh, every day is a crisis. My job as a coach is to land the plane safely, practice the midnight rule, get past mad. And and I'm sure you could list off a, a multitude of others for us, Coach. But I guess my question is, what made Coach Daly special? Um, you know, in, in doing some research here, uh, I came across a quote that Michael Jordan had said um, And at one point, and it was my only regret is that I did not play for Chuck as my real coach. And so you have the best player in the world saying that about Chuck Daly. Just getting your thoughts on Coach Daly as a coach, what made him special, and and how was he able to develop championship teams?
0: It, people he understood people Adam like you just you just can't believe he just had this instinct and it's for a guy that never played professionally he just knew it and he was very self-deprecating uh he wouldn't all those dailiesms as i named them were they were all they were, i called him the Ben Franklin of basketball i mean those sayings were incredible that he had you know and i and i still quote them today to people and uh, I use them to teach coaches how to coach, you know, one of the things he said it was the first thing you alerted alluded to when players stopped listening to you, then it's time for you to go. <laughs> I mean, it's really true, you know, and, but Chuck was uh, amazing. And nowadays coaches want to talk too much. And Chuck, if you asked him a question like, Hey, Rodman's a, a dirty player or, Isaiah, you know, froze out Jordan or some shit like that. said, you know, Chuck would just use this phrase, whatever. And I said, What whatever? What the hell's that mean? And and it, who knows what it means, but it never got him in trouble. And I thought that was just brilliant. He 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 just and, and now you see so many people in sport and in politics, they get in trouble because they talk too much. But he when he didn't want to talk about something, he just said whatever. And it could mean whatever you want it to be. But he it was a brilliant phrase. He was a really intelligent guy. But I remember when we went to Orlando and take over the magic. Unfortunately, Shaq wasn't still there, and Hars Grant had a case of what we called the blue flu the year before and missed about 20 games. When we had the press conference to announce Chuck as the coach, Horace Grant came to the press conference. And, and you know, we had had great battles with Chicago over the years. And Horace said, Coach, I'm really happy you're here. And Chuck dropped to both knees. He's 67 at the time. drops to both knees and he says, Horace, I beg you to trust me and play for me. And Horace picks him up and says, coach, don't worry, I will. Played 82 games, you know. you know." And when we tried to get Mike to play on uh, the Dream Team, he had just won a championship and he was exhausted, physically exhausted. And he said, coach, I'm going to have to back out. I, I, I don't have any juice left. Mike, He said, Mike, we're not going to practice. You can play golf every day. I'll play with you. We went. He went and got Payne Stewart, his neighbor, to be the freaking golfing partner for Michael. And Michael and Payne played every day to close down the course. Rod Thorne and Chuck followed in a golf cart, and he would play 36 holes every day, except the last game against Croatia, the gold medal game. Chuck convinced him to only play 18, you know. But he just had this wonderful way about him. And I think that was his, you know. He was a basketball savant. He he was a great defensive and offensive coach. But to me, and I think Pat Riley would say this and Phil Jackson, it was his ability to handle players and not handle. That's a bad word. Connect to players
3: that made the difference. So let's let's talk about the, the Pistons team before you got there. So the, the three years leading up there, they're climbing up the mountain, you know, losing yeah. the first round, losing the conference finals. You mentioned that the 88 NBA finals, they lose to the Lakers. Then they break through and they get the back-to-back into 89 and 90, kind of become that bad boys team that everyone knows now. Right. What do you think the difference was? Now, the easy answer here is you came on the staff, right? That was the big difference, right? No, but and I was, and that was <laughs> bullshit. Right. And, no, but, but what was the difference between... Uh, The the teams before that and the ones that that got over the hump. I think what
0: happens, Walt, is that you have to learn to break through and to persevere and to have that mental toughness to get through. And they they went through all the things that hurt and pain you. And when that happens, when you lose in the playoffs, whether it be to Boston or to the Lakers, you either fall apart or you take the next step. And each time they took the next step, which is a tribute, obviously, to the leadership of the coaching staff, to the front office. But most importantly, I think Chuck would say it was because we had great internal leadership. I don't know of any team in any sport where you win big without internal leadership. And by that, I mean, it's, and it's not, michael jordan it's not isaiah it's collectively so we had like on our championship teams we had six guys that were leaders and everyone led differently lamb beer was a very vocal leader super intelligent uh you know you had joe dumars who never said a word but led by doing the right thing all the time you had rodman who just competed like no one had ever seen and vinnie johnson was just one of those guys that you know uh, put me in the game and I will I will get it done. I mean, and, and then in practice, I think is another key thing. Nowadays, you know, teams don't practice much. I'll be honest. We practice. And when we practice, Vinny Johnson, for instance, felt that he should be a starter. He thought he was better than Dumars. And so every day, Chuck convinced him that make practice your game and he would annihilate Isaiah and Joe every day in practice. I mean, he, I mean, torture him because that was his game. And Isaiah's playing like thirty-five to thirty-eight minutes a game, so he's exhausted. And Joe's playing minutes because we have three players that were rotating. And Vinny just came in, and he was going to show every day that he was <laughs> as good as those guys. And I and that, and that, and then you had. On the bench, you had Rodman, John Sally, and James Edwards. Those guys are all starters on any other team. And I think that's what happened. So you had people pushing them every day. And I think that if you can have that, when you have good guys that you don't
2: need your starters to win, that's when you're really special. Well, Coach, speaking of special teams, and and I can see you got that team hanging on your wall there right behind you. uh, You had the opportunity to... To serve on the coaching staff for the 1992 Dream Team, arguably the most recognizable team uh, that the United States has ever had in the Olympic Games. And and if you don't mind, uh, we'd like to ask you a couple questions about that experience. And the first one being, uh, outside of Isaiah Thomas, and we'll get to him in a little bit here, Uh, was there anyone else that you feel got left off of that team that should have been a part of it? people don't realize, you know, because they see Christian Leitner on team, they said, well,
0: shoot, he's not good. What happened was the first time we ever let professional players play in the Olympics, not, not the U S FIBA. And the USA basketball made a rule that we must put one collegiate player on the team, which was kind of stupid, really. But I mean, like, you know, so we're going to put a 12th man on. Okay, great. And, we must have two collegiate coaches on the coaching staff. Mike Shashevsky, the young kid out of Duke, <laughs> my friend Mike, and uh, P.J. Carlissimo. And we're the two college coaches. Lenny Wilkins was there, and I was in charge of all our scouting and stuff. So uh, that was our coaching staff. And uh, Christian Leitner got on probably because of Coach K. Chuck and I, pr- frankly, would have liked Shaq on the team. You know, uh, you know. I mean, the guy was incredible. But we didn't really have a choice. And back then, now the head coach picks, along with it was Jerry Colangelo. Now it'll be Grand Hill. Uh, the head coach, Steve Kerr, in the next Olympics, they picked a team. Chuck Daly did not have a vote on the team. Can you imagine that? We had a committee of like 12 guys, GMs in the league, and Rod Thorne and stuff like that, and the commissioner. And they picked a team. Chuck had no say. It was absurd that Isaiah wasn't on the team. Absolutely absurd. And they tried to put it on that it was Magic and Michael. That's a bunch of BS, I think. I think they were scared. They never went to Michael and Magic and said, you know, hey, are you guys – you know, would you guys be upset by having him on the team? They never put it on there. I think that was their – but they were scared if they did put him on there, what would happen if they didn't want him on? Rather than go to him and say, hey, you guys want him on the team? You know, they didn't do that. And so no, nothing – obviously, John Stockton's an incredible Hall of Famer, but there's no comparison between – and he would be the first one to tell you that between Stockton and Isaiah. None. And so that was, that was the one that was, but, you know, I'm looking up on my wall of fame here, uh, our 1990 All-Star game, two years prior to that, that Chuck and I had in Miami was much better than the Dream Team. Not even close. No, I mean, I mean that, that team would have killed the Dream Team because Larry Bird was healthy back then. He was not healthy during the Olympics. And Stockton had basically almost like a broken leg. So he, he was not healthy. But we, I'm looking at it now. Scotty Pippen, healthy Larry Bird, my man Dominique Wilkins, who was absolutely the deal, Robert Parish, who was the chief, was great, Charles Barkley, uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, Isaiah, Reggie Miller, Kevin McHale, who was incredible, and uh, Jordan, and, uh, you know, and Dumars. I mean, it was absolutely the 12 best players I've ever seen on a team together, you know, and that was in Miami uh, and that was the East all-stars, but they were so much better, uh, you know, than the dream team and not even close. I mean, I I really think
3: they would have beaten by 25 points. I mean, that's how much better they were. So you briefly alluded to it, um, the the freeze out story. And I I think Um, maybe some of our younger listeners might not be, quite too hip to the story and I think there's been a lot of rumors that have what's your perspective on it? because the story goes uh, uh, yeah go ahead so the story goes 1985 all-star game Isaiah Thomas orchestrates freezing out Michael Jordan which to think about that happening today is unfathomable and and Michael Jordan has, has maybe been quoted saying that was kind of the genesis of their their rivalry through the years and then obviously walking off the court in the 91 uh, Eastern Conference finals. What's your perspective of of that Well, that regarding the, out
0: Yeah, regarding the freeze-out, I didn't coach that game. I coached 88 and 90, but uh, the freeze-out was a bunch of BS because Isaiah barely played in the second half of that game. <laughs> you know, uh, you know those teams, if you look on the team, pretty good teams. <laughs> pretty good players on those teams. I believe, you know, was Mike... Is his first year, was that his rookie year, I believe? You know, so he's a rookie. But he's one of the few rookies ever to make the All-Star team. Very rarely, they you know, they make it. But uh, the players were so good. Isaiah Thomas was made to be an MVP in All-Star games. If you look back, I think he won at least three MVPs. You know, guys like him and Magic, LeBron, uh, Steph Curry, the, certain guys with a style of play, they're just made because Isaiah back then in the summer times, they would play barnstorming basketball and he and magic would barnstorm throughout the Midwest playing and they would put on a show. So Isaiah in that type of a setting was incredible because he could make the great passes, but he could also score 30, 40 points. Uh, so he liked to star in those games, but Isaiah's been for me a thirty-year business partner, friend. I know the man too well. He would never do that to anyone. Number one, that's not who he is. We have great respect for Michael. Uh, walking off the court was kind of an unusual thing. After you know, Michael, you know, had gotten his ass whipped by us for several years. You know, for like seven years, and, uh, and I think our record against Michael at one point was like thirty-five and ten you know, Pistons over them, over Chicago with Mike. And finally they broke through, you know, and they were going to sweep us. They were up 3-0 and the morning of the elimination game or the day before, he made an announcement in his press conference that the Pistons were bad for basketball and it will finally end tomorrow. And so that really affected our guys that they were pissed at him. as the game was going to end our our locker room unfortunately we had to go past the bulls bench so our players with 10 seconds to go all got up and started to walk including the coaches we started to walk towards to walk off the court as the buzzer it was a 20 point game and all of our starters were on the bench and i'll never forget it i think it was mike mathis the referee sees our players walking and he blows the whistle and stops the game Because he sees them. He doesn't know what the heck's going on. And our players just keep walking and they never stop. Chuck, myself, our other assistant, Brenda Malone, John, Sally, a couple of us stopped and shook hands. But, you know, four or five of the starters were pissed at them and that that they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't respect them. That like Boston had done uh, to the Pistons when they won, Boston respected them, wished them well. And vice versa, when, you know, the Pistons had lost to the Celtics, they had respected them. So that's what that was about. It's regrettable. But I I I coach Michael's two sons in college, Jeffrey and, and, and Mar- Marcus. And I tell Michael all the time, I said, Mike, it's freaking 30 plus years ago. <laughs> like, let it go, man. <laughs> and sure as shit,
3: there's the last dance and it's right back up there. <laughs> Well, I didn't know the little bit about the referee stopping the game. Yeah, sure like that, that didn't is. Help. Who's it. That didn't oh help. no, it's no. I mean, if he just let
0: the game go, they yeah. would have just they would have crossed, and 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 they got all bent out of shape about it. But literally one week later, they beat the Lakers in four 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 one, I believe. Right? Was it four one or four zero? I'm not sure. I think it was but four one. Went, yeah. yeah, I think it was four one. And when they won the championship. They never shook the Lakers' hands. They celebrated, which is what you're supposed to do. They celebrated. But the starters on both teams were on the bench because it was a blowout. But the Bulls were on the floor. The Lakers were on the floor. They win the game. They throw the ball up in the air. They hug each other. The Lakers walk off the court. You know, this is not the NHL, you know, where we have handshake lines and shit. This is not Little League, you know. We don't hug and kiss like they do now,
2: you know, after every game. So, Coach, I just got done reading Scottie Pippen's book, Unguarded, and and have read Jack McCollum's book on the Dream Team. And obviously there was some references to the Dream Team in the last dance. And I just want to ask about a couple of scrimmages that took place uh, prior to you guys starting to play in the Olympic Games. And the first would have been against the collegiate players. And, uh, you know, in the last dance, they, they kind of portrayed that first game, uh, that you guys ended up getting beat, they, they, they portrayed it in a way that Coach Daly wanted to get beat. W- was that the truth? Yeah, I was in Zaragoza, Spain, scouting
0: the European Olympic qualifying. And uh, and I called back, you know, to tell him, you know, and uh, I remember uh, PJ Carlissimo said to me, uh, we got beat today by the uh, college kids this, you know, I said, really? And what happened is they didn't have anyone that could keep Bobby Hurley in front of them, you know, and they had a nice team. They had Bobby Hurley, Grand Hill, et cetera. And they just, uh, they just beat him. But, you know, when I talked to Chuck two days later, I didn't call him that day. uh, I said, what happened? And he said, uh, I said, I knew what he would do. I said, uh, so what do you do when you're lost? He said, see you tomorrow at 1030, guys. And that was how he treated a loss in a regular season. He would never say anything much other than when we would meet for practice the next day. Uh, He was really exceptional. Uh, Nowadays, you see coaches screaming, yelling, berating players and stuff like that. He knew that until you watch the film of a game, sometimes you can really inflict scars on your players. So he just... He knew that this team was so good. It might be the best thing ever possible for them. He was right. Uh, uh, The next day, without saying much, he just said, let's, you know, you know, said, here's who's going out there. Next thing I know, they played uh, a half and it was 38 to two was the final score. And so, you know, that's pretty good coaching. (laughs) Better playing, (laughs) better playing. But, you know, I mean, So I think the best thing that ever happened to the Dream Team
2: was to get their ass kicked. So Coach, talk to us uh, about the scrimmage that took place between Team Magic and Team Michael. We heard about it um, on the last dance. Do, Do you feel as though this scrimmage was the point in time where Magic and Larry recognized that It was now Michael's league as the last dance alluded to, or do you think they knew that well before the scrimmage?
0: Well, they knew before then (laughs) they knew before then because he had now won championships. You know, he'd led the league in scoring several years. Uh, I think he'd led the league in scoring like seven years in a row. And, uh, but what, what happened then is basically, and this used to happen all the time with the bulls Phil. Phil would take Michael and put him with four subs in practice and have him go against four starters and one sub to just get the most out of him. And so, you know, Chuck said, Okay, let's let's pick teams. And uh, you know, Magic, you got the first pick, Michael, you got the second, Magic, you got third, etc. And Magic picked his squad, Mike picked his. And you know, they're they're just, you know, competing. But the thing about those guys, there's no, there's no fans there. You know, there was just Prince Albert, I think, was the only guy. He owned He owned Monaco, so that we let him come. But, uh, you know, they, uh, they just have – and trash-talking started because Larry's still the best, and Michael can go at it, and now Magic charms in, and now Barkley's in there. And, and they, basically what happened was it, they just started competing – and, man, it was as good a basketball as you could ever see for a period of, like, 20 minutes. I mean, it was just fabulous. Because, again, you know, people don't realize we had about five days of practice to get ready to play in a tournament in the Americas up in Portland. We pr- trained in San Diego, went up to Portland and had to play eight games, went 8 no, And then we took, like, a uh, four-week break before we reassembled in Monaco. And now to practice for a week before we play because we had to qualify because we had lost in the 88 Olympics in South Korea. And so that's what happened. And uh, so, you know, you're trying to put a team together without anyone getting hurt. Michael's already played 100 plus games, you know, and, you know, so the other guys in the finals. But, you know, and you only had you had like uh, really 10 players, you know, nine and a half counting bird. So it ended a deep squad, but man, when they, you know, it was funny, uh, you know, cause all they did is they defended and they did, they ran fast breaks. And I think our winning margin was almost 43, 47 points a game. It was absolutely incredible. You know, nothing like it is now. Most of the teams were just more concerned about getting autographs and pictures than they were competing if the Russians and Yugoslavians had stayed together as one country, it would have been a different deal because those were incredible basketball powers, but they had broken them up. Croatia was incredibly strong. They banned Serbia from the games, uh, who had a great team, uh, a top four team. And then uh, Lithuania was uh, incredible with Marcelonis and Sabonis. But, you know, you know, if you had the Russian team together with you know Sasha Volkov and the guys from Ukraine. You yeah, have fabulous team, but it was uh, it, it it was a great experience. And the NBA players on on all the teams played well, but we didn't have a lot of NBA players in the league back then. You know we had Petrovich who was going to be on our team in New Jersey, and Kukoc, you know was going to come. Uh, Sabonis you know was there, and you know those were the great, great, great Dino Raja you know great players. And uh, but if they were all together their countries, big time, you
2: know, big, big time stuff. So coach, I've listened to many of the podcasts that that you've been a part of. And in almost every one, uh, you talk about how you don't coach players, you coach people. Can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? And maybe before you do that, though, uh, talk to us a little bit about how you define coaching and what characteristics you have observed over the years that successful coaches possess.
0: Adam, I really think I, – I, I really try to say I don't coach basketball. For 50 years, I don't coach basketball. I coach people, and I think that's the key. I think all of us, you know, it's it's not – I mean, you know, we know we coach basketball, but I think it's more important to understand that we coach people. Coaching, the art of coaching, which I think there's an art and a science, the tactics, you know, are the science – Strategy, offense, defensive stuff, skill development. But the art is how we handle our people. And it's, I think it's the most important part of coaching. So <clears throat> I define coaching as, you know, being the ability to take players where they can't take themselves. It's no different, frankly, than parenting. You know, when God gives us these little children, you know, these kids, you know, if you just let them grow up on their own, who the hell knows what's going to happen? So parents are given to them to help take them where they couldn't take themselves. And I think it's no different. And I think that's where we are. It's the, art, it's the same thing a teacher does. Uh, same thing you're supposed to do in business, frankly. You know, take the people that work with you and take them where they can't take themselves by giving them leadership and manage them properly. So that's why I think coaching is. <clears throat> I think it's the most important thing uh, I emphasize it to coaching. You know, if you are an X and O savant, but your players won't listen to you, it don't matter what the hell you know, because you're not going to get a chance to connect to them. I, I really believe that the most important thing now, Adam and Walt, is to have high integrity and trust. If you don't have those two ingredients, then you can't coach because the players will see right through you. They'll see that you don't tell them the truth. And if they can't trust you, the same relationship you have with friends, your spouse, if, you, if there's no trust there, you have no relationship. So I think, I, I often say to these young coaches that really are, they want to be the next Drew Hanlon or Gannon Baker or Kevin Ead. they want to be a player development person or a skill development coach you can't even do skill development until you have a relationship with the player you're going to work with. It's no different whether you're a high school, college or MBA coach. You have to have a relationship like John Morant has an incredible relationship with Taylor Jenkins. And Steve Kerr has a ridiculous relationship with Steph and so on and so forth. That is the essence of coaching. It's relationship. And it and it holds true in every sport. Whether you're, I'm a big Ryan Day fan at Ohio State football. I study coaches in every sport. And that's what it's about. You have to have a relationship with these guys or they don't get to see, hey, I get this great passing game. I don't really give a shit because I can't, I I don't like you and I don't trust you and you never tell me the truth. And so that's where I think it comes down to. So you have to have those things. You have to have a relationship which you gain through integrity
3: uh, and trust and about caring about the people that you're coaching. Yeah, absolutely, Coach. Uh, the old saying: they they don't care what you know until they know that you care, right? Exactly. And, uh, like you said, it, it applies to so many walks of life, but especially coaching. Um, and I want to talk about your resume. I mean, it's extensive; it's it speaks for itself. And I never yeah. got
0: a job with it either. That's, that's pretty.
3: Good. <laughs> like you said, right time, right place, relationships, right. Um, you've been an assistant coach for a large portion of your career. Um, maybe to some of our, our coaches out there that are working up the ranks or, uh, assistant coaches right now, what do you think are qualities a good assistant coach possesses? Well, that's an incredible
0: question. Um, I think it's about serving. I, you know, I serve my head coach. I serve my players. Uh, when I was a professional coach, I served the owner I worked for. Um, but those, I serve people. And you have to be, have great humility, I believe. Uh, And I think those are ingredients. You have, you know, you have to be a guy that works his butt off. You have to be someone that, like my big thing now is we have a lot of coaches that are on, I'm going to just use the expression other coaches use to me is they want to microwave their career. They just want to all of a sudden press a button, put one minute in there and shit, they got a better job. Oh man. You know, and, all of and, and this is not that. This is about having a sustained career of excellence at whatever you do. And it'd be like uh, if I'm teaching in the classroom, I'm a high school teacher. That's the best job I got. And, and so I've got to work the job I have as well. But I have to do everything I can to help my head coach be successful. And then if I do that, then maybe if I have a desire to be a head coach, Someone will notice. But if nothing else, my boss will say, he does it. he's done a great job for me. Walt has done a great job. Adam's done a great job for me. Give them a shot. They're really good. And here's what they've done for me. Uh, but my that's my whole thing. And I but I also believe that our younger coaches on the men and women's side, they have to be amazing learners. You know, you have to have an incredible desire. So everyone in the Ohio Coaches Association if you don't have a personal obligation there is no reason you shouldn't be at the clinic at the end of September there's no reason because that's what this is about how do i get better and and so what am i doing to get better today and i mean if, if you know we always are preaching to our players you know take more shots do this do that to get better what are you doing i have a little thing above my desk it says what have I do, what am I doing to develop myself today? Every day I read that. I don't even have a team to coach right now, but I'm doing that. What am I doing to develop myself? And I study more basketball on a daily basis than 99% of coaches in the country at every level, because I have an intense desire to get better still. And then what am I doing to develop others? What am I doing to develop other people? Whether it be in my case what am I doing to develop coaches? What am I doing to develop players? And that's where you should be thinking about. And what am I doing? Who am I learning from? Who am I studying? There's a lot of ways to learn and study. So I do get better, you know, and I, I think, but just to sit there and think osmosis is going to make you better, it ain't happening. Not happening.
3: So that's my big thing to you. No, I, I love what you said about, you know, so many people want to microwave their careers and it goes outside of coaching right i think it's this, absolutely this, this epidemic we kind of have in our society now where it's instant gratification we want to skip steps and and that kind of goes right into the, the next question i had i, I had sure. heard a previous uh, interview you had where you you talked about um you know our, our better players you know whether it's high school whether it's college having kind of one foot out the door you know your better high school players they just want to get to college your better college players, they just want to get to the NBA or whatever that level is, G League, whatever that is. Um, do you feel that that NIL is is only going to add to this issue? Yeah, I think
0: I think everything's. I think I, I think it's kind of right along with our country. Our you know our country's so screwed up right now. I mean I mean you know every now and then you know I'm I'm like every American. You know, I consider myself patriotic. I love this country. I'm thankful for it. Uh, It's given me the best stuff. But, I mean, the United States of America, not the divided states of America, how can we not be together? I've traveled to, like, 70 countries in the world. I was in Russia 10 times while I was communist. With the Hawks, uh, our owner, Ted Turner, we, we did the Goodwill Games. We had CNN in the middle of freaking Moscow. I had carte blanche. I've been to China 17 times, okay? Every time I get home, I say, oh, baby, this is great. Oh, it's great going to Italy. It's wonderful going to some of these other places. But man, when you get off that plane and you're back in this country, it ain't nothing like it, except we're doing our damnedest. You know, it's like we got a thirty-point lead, and we're trying to blow it every day here in this country. And boy, it pisses me off. You know, I live in you know down south in Louisiana. The gas this today was two dollars and ninety-nine cents. And literally, when I stopped, went in to pay, this person says, "Freaking inflation is killing this country. The, the Democrats are ruining this country. The gas is now it was it was four fifty. Now it's two ninety-nine. I mean, I mean like." Okay. I mean, like, you think people, the Democrats want to charge more for gas? I mean, what, what's wrong with us? I always say, and, and this is my only political thing, if the politicians were high school, college, or professional coaches, I'm not sure there'd be one of them that could keep their job, wouldn't get fired for performance, right? I mean, you know, if we had a record like they have, I mean, think about it. We have to perform every day or else we have consequence of our actions. Those people, they can screw up. They can not do any. They can just all they can do is bitch and moan, and they're fine. <laughs> That's not the country I was. I was. I was. I grew up on enough of that. Sorry. No, no, that's okay. That's and okay. I am independent. I am not Democrat. I'm not, re- I used to be Republican for tax breaks, but
3: not anymore. <laughs> well, one thing I have enjoyed, um, you know, listen to your interviews and that podcast you've done was, I think kind of this underlying theme about coaches being able to minimize their ego. Um, and, and you spoke about doing less drills in practice and more controlled scrimmages, yeah. especially as the season gets on, you know, why do a drill that you're never gonna do in a game right um, you also said college basketball is overcoached and undertaught which which I love I, I jotted that down right away do you think that um, this is coaches not being able to swallow their pride and, and kind of let go of that control a little bit
0: no or? no I really don't well I really think it's about we are all whoever taught us like God forbid God forbid my wife had an abusive Dad, And she had to watch as when she became a parent, I said, one day, I said, you are just like your daddy, you know, verbally abusive, not hitting anyone. I said, that ain't the way, you know, but that's what she modeled. So we modeled the people that coached us. I literally coach coaches because I consult now. I coach coaches that literally are doing things 70 years old in basketball because that's what they learn from. 70 years old. Now, I was coached by UV and but I do things that are so, like I'm one of the new edge type of coaches because I keep learning and I understand that our people change. Example, the, we are coaching at the high school and collegiate level and early pros, what we call the Gen Z generation. Okay, these are the fourteen to twenty twos. And their attention span is five seconds to seventeen seconds. Well, you're gonna come out and talk to them and lecture them for thirty minutes and stuff, they're they're done. That's why as a teacher in school you better figure out some stuff to get them involved and interactive with them, or else if you're if you're a and I hate to use this, my mom was a history teacher. If you're a history teacher and you're lecturing for one hour, you lost the group. And so my thing is, is that transfer of learning is something we learned in education. So my big thing is to do drills, these young people have no idea what we're doing a drill for. None, zero. So you do a drill and they go, okay, did the drill, but they have no idea what that is. They can't transfer that drill. Like coaches can, but the kids can't. So my thing is every one of my players... Whether they're and I've had a road scholar in the NBA, I've also had guys like Rodman that was a janitor in the Dallas airport and was a rookie at 27 uh, who had a basketball IQ like a genius, but with literally no education. But every one of these guys that I coach, whether it's high school, college, or pro, they have to get an A in my class. I'm I'm teaching basketball. So irregardless of their academic standing, I have to make things that are complex simple so that they get an A. Because if they if you come and watch our team play and three guys know what they're doing, two guys don't, the people in the stands gonna say, God, they don't know what the hell they're doing. They're a poorly coached team. Whereas a teacher in school could have half of the kids fail or get a D, and there's no penalty. They're not smart kids. Sports is different, you know, and and I think that's the thing. So we have to, as coaches, change, not for us, change to the people we're coaching. And that's my big thing. And so uh, everyone at the colleges are coming back to school. And now you ask the kids, what have you been doing? I've been working with an individual coach. I've been, everything is one on zero. Now, all of a sudden, they don't know how to play five on five anymore. So my, that's my reasoning is we need to teach. When we were growing up, we would go to a playground or to a gym and we'd play five on five. They don't do that anymore. They'd rather go in there and just shoot. We have guys trying out for the NBA that won't work out against one other player, let alone three other guys. They want to work out what we call a European workout, one on zero. <laughs> I could look good one on zero. Okay. So... My thing is now we need to teach kids how to play five on five. And and that's why I do it. And the controlled scrimmage allows me to, and, I, and this is what I spoke on at our clinic at Ohio a few years ago. It allows me to practice man-to-man offense against man-to-man defense, transition offense, transition defense, rebounding, not turning the ball over, being competitive, two baskets, win, you know, that game. And we would do that for 30, 40 minutes. And you know what? Our teams, and you can work on any phase of the game. You can start your team in a zone offense and zone defense. You can start with a side out of bounds. You can start by pressing full court and start the two basket game. But I think
2: efficiency and how you run your practice is so important nowadays. Yeah, Coach, you know, just curious your thoughts on how many areas do you think coaches should really focus in on and in? and try to be great in those areas. You know, we all as coaches can fall into the trap of wanting to do so many different things that we just become average or good at those things instead of great at just a couple things. So may, maybe give us your thoughts on that. Well, you
0: know, I, I you know, I, I lost a, a, a dear friend and the game lost a dear friend and Pete Carrell a couple days ago. And I can remember going to see Pete in clinics, but also going down my college, high school coach after UB was a player at Princeton, a thousand point score. And I'd go down and watch, watch practice. I ran a basketball camp when I was 19 years old, my freshman year, I had, I had Pete Carrillo as a speaker. I had 14 kids in the camp. Imagine that he came up and spoke at my camp. I had Jeff Petrie come, one of his former players, come up. I got 14 freaking campers at a day camp. And all I had to do was give him a cheeseburger and a, and a beer. And Pete used to say, Brendan, emphasize two things. And he's coaching Princeton. Emphasize two things. I said, what do you emphasize? Passing and defense. That's all we emphasize, passing and defense. When I go to Chuck, all of a sudden we emphasize two things, defense and rebounding. We were the best pick and roll team I've ever seen in the NBA. We never emphasized that. Why? Because Chuck didn't feel I had to twist Isaiah's arm and those guys' arms to worry about offense, but to get him to play defense, to get him to rebound, be the best rebounding team in the NBA, that was going to be the thing to give us championship DNA. So emphasize the things that are hard to do and then you sneak in the other things and make sure that they're co- very competent in that, you know, but those were the things. So I can't say, Hey guys, we got to be good at, and then you list 10 things. People can handle lists of two and three things. That's it. But you do, you coach your whole team and you expand, but as points of emphasis, like for instance, uh, we talk about analytics now and, uh, uh, and I said, you know, Guys like Yubi, Pat Riley, they were using analytics since the day they started coaching because it was the stat sheet, just like you guys do. You take the stat sheet. If you looked at the stat sheet, I said, Adam, what's important on the stat sheet? Well, what's important on the stat sheet for you? You say, well, if you know we have a lot of assists or if we out-rebound the other team or we don't turn the ball over or we keep the other team shooting under a certain percentage, we get to the free throw line X number of times. Those are the things that will affect winning. That's analytics. The statistics that affect winning. So that's how you're going to coach. So the things that when you're coaching, if you know, like Steve Kerr wants 30 assists, he wants 300 passes a game. (laughs) Sounded like an incredible number to me, 300. But he does that. And when they do that, they win. So that's something that he emphasizes. All of a sudden, he comes in and he says, we have eight assists at halftime, and we've only passed the ball 96 times. He says to the media, he says to his team in the locker room, they know what he's talking
2: about because they know what the standard is for them. You know, Coach, based on what you talked about, I feel like you, myself, Walt, we have a shared belief on this idea of coaches constantly evolving and learning improving at their craft and you know that is at the heart of what we set out to do in in creating this podcast and my question for you now is what is the biggest misconception or change in an approach from a young coach brendan sir to a present day coach brendan sir well when i when i was a little younger is how much damn money i made shit i was making a lot of money (laughs) but
0: uh uh, but uh, i i i just think uh you know over years i kept learning you keep growing you keep getting more mature you keep learning about what's really important you find out that how important relationships are when you're young you don't understand those things uh you 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 don't really when you're a young person and a young coach you really don't know what the hell you know when i got an mba i was 27 28. i didn't know a damn thing about the league i didn't know I know squat about it. I didn't know. I just sat there and let Fratello and Yubi do all the stuff. And I just sat there and tried not to screw up. But you start to learn and stuff like that. And so I, I think, but you learn every day. And and I, I think it's listening more than talking. I think a lot of young coaches want to impress me by how much they know. So they want to talk, 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 as opposed to I'm very willing to share and tell them but I, I, I do a lot of listening and still, and I, I think it's really an important part uh, to listen and, and to, and, and don't be afraid to ask people for help. Don't act like you got all the answers because I, I still, still ask. I mean, I mean if, if you knew the people I talk to every day, you'd say, You talk to that person? Yeah, because there's things I want to ask, or they call me and want to ask me stuff. I'm talking about guys making $6, $10 million or $12 million in the NBA as coaches. They're calling, asking me, you know, I had, a, I had one of the best coaches in the league. An NBA coach of the year called me up about a month ago and said, Brendan, how the hell do you teach transition defense? It's a great question. The guys, you know, got one of the best young teams in the league. I said, uh, I said, it was three, I said, it's three things offensively. Don't turn the ball over. Don't take bad shots, quick shots and get offensive rebounds and get to the foul line. If you do those four things, they can't run on you. If you get an offensive rebound, you know, if you get fouled, if you don't turn the thing over and if you don't take quick, bad shots, you got a chance of, you don't have to worry about getting your ass back. You just, you helped yourself by the way you played offense. He was only thinking about the shot goes up. Now I got to get back It had it's, He was missing the most important elements. The biggest problem in the NBA right now in the style of offense, they're all running what we're calling five-out offense. And if you see in the summer league, you got five guys outside the three-point line. They're shooting. And some team, like the Spurs, they, they tell all five guys to get back. Well, you know, if you played against Tom Izzo, one of my favorites, he sends four guys to the offensive glass every possession. You know, we would send two to three guys all the time to the glass. Because our thing was, let's get a second shot because 75% of the time when you get a second shot, you're going to get fouled or get s- scored. And they're retreating and you're only going to make 40% of your threes. So what the hell are you doing? You know, you're giving up a lot of opportunities there. So I think, you know, I think there's a lot of things, but, you know, but uh, those are the things that I, I'm, I'm thinking about.
3: So, Coach, right now, um, mental health has become kind of a hot high- topic that, that people are talking about a lot, receiving a lot of attention and, and rightfully so. In um, your opinion, it's kind of a two-part question here. Is enough being done to address it? And what can we do as coaches to make sure that we're, like you said, serving our players when it comes yeah. to mental health? I think it's. I think we've never seen
0: a time like this. You know, just like our country is screwed up, the pandemic has set every individual in our country on a, on a different path. Uh, Billy Donovan, who's one of my confidants and dearest friends, he came in to speak in Vegas at coaching you. And he of the best basketball lecturers in the world. And he walks in to be my first speaker. And he walks in and he says, Hey, do you mind if I change my topic? I said, Billy, you do whatever the hell you want. I, you know, he says, uh, he walks out there, no notes. And he says, The most important thing in coaching right now is to understand whether you're a high school, college, or pro coach, your players or every one of our players, your players are going through stuff. They're dealing with stuff. And that was the way he phrased it. And he says, I got players that are making 25, 30, $40 million. They're going through stuff. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're not going through stuff. And if you're poor, uh, people have lost parents, relatives, Um, they're scared. Um, I think, and unfortunately we're not trained as coaches. We're not trained for this. So with that being the case, read as much as you can. One of the things that I do for teams, and I do this when I go and consult with college and pro teams, I speak to the players every place I go. And I I tell them, I said, you know, if I'm not doing a long session with them, I I tell their coaches put them through this exercise, and it can be if you had a high school team, you can do it over five weeks. You can, you know, do one topic a week. You know, you can do it five days, however you want to do it. But the most important thing is get players to talk. And so we do what we call the five H's, and the five H's are each each time we would do one of the H's, we would say every player, coach, and staff member must participate they only have to speak for 1 minute or less that's all and all we want them to do is talk to their teammates their friends on this we pick out a topic each one so one of the h's is heartache talk to us about a heartache that you've gone through and nowadays it could be uh, i lost my grandmother to covid you know i'm i you know whatever it might be um, and and now and they tell you a story, but the reason that this is good because now all of your teammates and your coaches now find out about stories about different players and coaches. And uh, my five H's are heartache, heritage, which tell me your background, tell me your history. A lot of kids and coaches don't know where the story of a kid, hero, who's a hero in your life? Um, you know. I did this uh, with a college team a couple of years ago. My hero was my wife because for all my years I was coaching in the NBA uh, or in college, she was always, I had to raise our two kids. (laughs) She's the one that had to get them into gymnastics and golf practice. I'm freaking flying around charter plane, making a ton of money. She's busting her ass, feeding them, doing everything, taking three or four dogs, you know, out for a walk, you know, We've got our gardening right now in the backyard. <laughs> and so who's your hero? And you would be stunned who some of these kids' heroes are. Hope. What's what hope do you have? And for the kids that you might have in your program that have no money, there's some kids in your program that have no mom or dad. You know, where are they gonna get hope from? And so these are things that I think are so, so darn important for them to go and learn about and I've just become fascinated with that and, you know, the different things that they they can learn from. And, you know, and it's, it's a simple thing, but the biggest reason I do it is so that they will talk, we will learn from them. And I literally had a kid from Africa that I had at Stetson a few years ago. And literally the kid had not been home as a lot of the African kids will be. They get to come to the U.S. They're almost like, shipped around the country, like human trafficking, to find a situation. They find a place for him, a prep school or something to go to. Kid had not been home in 11 years. 11 years he had not seen. He had 10 siblings. He had not seen his mom or dad or 10 brothers and sisters. I mean, by the end of it, the kid is in tears. But no one knew his story, really. And boy, it changed everything. So I think it's important. And I don't care if you're rich or poor, everyone has a story.
2: Coach, now we'd like to transition to a segment that we call Triple Threat, where we're going to give you three topics and let you share your thoughts, ideas, experiences, and or suggestions with our listeners. And I'm going to go ahead with the first one, high school straight to the pros. I don't like it
0: because of maturity. Um, You know, when you have 18-year-olds coming in Uh, they don't all, I mean, first of all, they're going to get money. That's generational wealth. Um, they can't even go out to be with their teammates. They can't go into a bar, you know, not to drink, but just, you know, they won't let them in sometimes. Uh, so it's, and if you have players on your team, like LeBron James is 38 years old, you know, he's got a son. You know that uh, you know, eighteen years old shit. He doesn't want, you don't want to take someone else's kid around. You know, and and he's not going to help them win. I mean, even uh, you know, LeBron was terrific as a rookie, but Kobe wasn't any good. Garnett wasn't any good as a rookie. You know, and these guys were the number one players in the country in high school. Uh, so they're not ready. But more importantly, they're so far behind basketball wise. I like them to go to college so that they have socialization, so they've met other people, they've been with kids their own age, they've had an experience, they've got, they've gone and played against some good competition, Uh, they've had to handle a little bit of media, and now I think you know after one year they're still not ready, but I just hope we don't
3: change the rule. I think it would be a big mistake for the NBA. Okay, so number two in our triple threat, uh, when you're building a program, trying to build a culture, the idea of standards versus rules. Yeah, I'm big, big on that. Uh,
0: I hate rules. Uh, I love standards. And for those, you know, the NCA, we have a manual that's about yo thick. uh, You know, 400 plus pages, and freaking every school in the country breaks the rules. I don't care. You break some rule because if you got 400 freaking pages of rules, you're going to break some. I don't care if you were a teacher at a high school, if you have a, that many rules. So what we try to do is have standards and and usually no more than 10 to 12. And a, an example of a standard would be no excuses, no excuses. No, don't say, Hey, the ref screwed us, this and that, or, you know, the court was slippery. No, we don't have any excuses. Or the bus broke down. No, um, you know that we're going to we're going to play hard we're going to practice and play hard every day i'm going to be a great teammate you know that's just those are standards you know i think it's better because then i can we can hold each other accountable and the other thing about standards versus rules is that i like the the players to participate and if you have a high school team I would have my older players participate in making the standards with the coaching staff.
3: That shared ownership that we talk about, right? Love it. Love it. So talk to us about coaching elite players. Mm. Okay. At the high school
0: level, you know, I was never one of them. My daughter was. Advanced placement students, okay? Okay. I was the opposite. I was not an advanced placement student. But if you teach advanced placement students, you better know what the hell you're doing because those kids will know that you don't know what you're teaching. You don't know what the hell you're doing. So that's the same thing. The The easiest thing to do is coach bad players because bad players do everything you say. You're just not going to win many games. But elite players, talented players, high IQ players, you got to be really good. And I love coaching them because I got to be at the top of my game. So uh, you that's why you better keep learning. You better keep studying if you want to coach really good players. And I, I think and, – and sometimes, you know, we'll, you might go and see an AAU team play or an EYBL game or something, and you'll see a team, and you'll say, God, that team's got so much talent, but they're so disorganized – They have great players, but they're not that well coached. Then you'll see another EYBL team that has really good players and they're really well coached. And, and that guy really knows. And so I, I think that's one of the things that you, you know, Kevin Boyle, the coach of Mount Verde prep, uh, Mount Verde Academy, I mean, down in uh, Florida, he's been a great coach for 35 years. He's now coaching the best players in the world, high school players. And it's, and he is the right guy to do it because he is a, he's a world class master coach and that, and so he fits that profile perfectly but not very few people can and so you have to raise your game to coach elite players
2: Coach, this has been great. Really enjoyed it. And Walt and I have one more question for you. But before we get to that, we just want to thank you for coming on the show tonight, spending some time with us on the Holding Court Podcast. To us, this speaks to you as a servant leader by your willingness to give back, by sharing your experiences with the game of basketball. And we thank you for that.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, I love to do it.
2: So, Coach, at some point, all of us are going to have to hang up that whistle for the last time. And as you reflect on your 40 plus years in the game of basketball, how does coach Brendan Sir want to be remembered?
0: Uh, someone that tried to help other coaches, help other coaches get better. My, my desire in this world is that someone, when I was a young coach, helped me, spent time with me, took time with me. When I asked them a question, Or when I was a counselor at a camp, you know, we used to, you know, have a little clinic at night or we would talk basketball and coaches would, some of the older coaches would spend time and tell me, answer questions that I had. And so my whole thing is I really have a burning desire, not just in the United States, but around the world to really improve coaching. And I think because I think coaching, I think a coach is the most I think it's one of the greatest professions in the world, and and parenting is coaching, as I mentioned earlier. Teaching is coaching; it's helping guide people, and so I think it's so noble what we do. And and so I encourage, and it's it, it has such a good, it's such a great word to coach someone. Uh, it's just it's a wonderful thing, and I just want to help people get better. And so if we can do that, because if I can help coaches get better, they're going to help players get better. And a couple of, you know, one of the programs that we had in trying to institute coaching in China was that the coaching wasn't good there and they wouldn't allow us to really go in and, you know, do the coaching program that we needed to do there because the players weren't getting better because the coaching wasn't good. We're now in a venture now where we're trying to do the same thing in Africa. Fabulous talent. Kids have a burning desire to get better. And we want to take the coaches in Africa and make them better so that they can better serve their players. And it really is around the world. So if we do that, I really believe that through sport, and I've seen it, you know, when you know, when Russia and we used to do the goodwill games, that the friendships that we have made from players i always say the problem is in in our world is not sport it's not players it's not coaches it's governments <laughs> okay the players are great the coaches are great it's governments screw it all up and so i think if we can really help people sport is one of the greatest ways i think to help people and develop friendships around the world and that's that's kind of my mission right now in life is to really helped do that throughout the entire uh, a global atmosphere.
2: Hey, once again, a special thanks to coach Brendan Sir for coming on to the podcast tonight and coach Sir uh, has actually provided an exclusive offer just for OHSBCA members. Right now, all members are eligible to save 40% on the all-new Coaching U Plus. You can access the entire Coaching U video library anytime, anywhere, and on any device. Our expanding video library is equipped with strategies and concepts taught by some of the best coaches in the world, allowing you to learn and grow as a coach on a year-round basis. If this interests you, make sure to check out our show notes where you'll be given a link to gain access to this great opportunity that Coach Sir has provided.
1: Thanks for listening to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook at Ohio BK Coaches, on Instagram at OHSBCA1947, and online at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.